Thus, for Ruth, a philosopher of science at Florida State University, the debate over creationism and evolutionism is more conflict between two religions than one between religion and science. Welcome to the Destined to Win podcast with pastor and teacher Tim Masters. Pastor Tim is the senior pastor of Victorious Life Christian Center in Flagstaff, Arizona. I'm Joe Harding, inviting you to join us for worship services Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Flagstaff Middle School Complex. For more information on the ministries of Victorious Life Christian Centers or to make a donation, visit us online at vlccaz.org. That's vlccaz.org. Now with today's message, here's Pastor Tim Masters. God. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent Boy, my glasses. And, and he sent and signified it by the angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Boy, as Pastor said, all you have to do is turn on the TV, pick up a newspaper. The time is at hand, like at no other time. And one of the things that that God says in his word is that in those end times, knowledge will increase. Well, guys, let me tell you, if knowledge increases much faster, you know, it feels like I'm backing up already. Every single week, there is more coming out. These are just the last two weeks uh, of new scientists. This is a journal. I I take all these science journals and and try to stay current, and I'm currently involved in three major research projects. Um, The one that really changed my mind was back in 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted up in, in Washington State, and I was there. It darn near killed me. That was the second time. But at that point, I was a secular humanist, and I was trying to do my best to prove that religion and God were for weaklings. So God used a volcano to break through that hardened heart. And I mean, it had to blast through it. Because at age 14, I told my mother that science had all the answers, that Jesus and this religious stuff was for weaklings. But now, like at no other time, the scientific 
progress. How many of you heard of the Human Genome Project? Yeah, I have a book here that just came out that the scientific community wishes didn't exist. It's by Dr. John Stanford, a geneticist from Cornell University. He and five other scientists spent four years, page by page, verse by verse, going through the thousands of pages of research that was done on the Human Genome Project. Two teams were competing. Right there is, should tell you there's some problems. Anytime two teams are competing and money is involved, there's room for shenanigans. And let me tell you, there were a lot of them. But the team that won, you know, got the Nobel Prize and all of the money and the recognition by Dr. Francis Collins. Well, the team that won, after they got all of these accolades and the scientists started going through the genome project, they found some rather interesting things. First of all, that team that won just arbitrarily discarded 10,000 sequences of the genome. No wonder they won, because the other team is still going through those 10,000 sequences. They justified it by saying, well, that was just junk DNA. I've got news for you. As of today, we know there is no such thing as junk DNA. But, you know, prior to getting this, uh, this enormous project, and by the way, I, as a biologist, and my PhD is in evolutionary biology, I chose that field because, and I chose the school because right on my degree it says evolutionary biology, not just plain old biology. That's how hardened I was. So I also have a master's degree in education. I have a master's degree in geology. I belong to the California Academy of Science, the National Academy of Science, the California Science Teachers Association, the, New, the American Herpetological Society. Are you impressed? See, God doesn't need all that stuff. See, that was how focused I was. I really meant it. At 14, when I told my mother I was going to prove it, guys, I started to worship at the altar of science. That became my God. And guess what? It is a religion. Evolution and creation are two faith-based religions. And boy, I'll tell you, my prayers this morning were, God, give me as much faith in your word as I had in man's word. Because that's what it boils down to. See, ologies are great. I loved ologies. I couldn't decide which ology I liked best. But it's when we add the math to our ology that things really start to show. See, ology just means the study of. When we add the math, we find out how well our ologies are doing. Well, we've added the math. And, you know, prior to that genome project, as far as I'm concerned, that was probably one of the, the greatest scientific achievements of my lifetime. That is, and when they were trying to get the money from you to pick your pockets to do this research, they were promising everything. Oh, we're going to cure cancer and Alzheimer's and diabetes. We're going to change everything. We're going to cure old age. That's exactly what they were saying. When's the last time you heard something about the genome project? Well, one of the things that happened is it turned out to be so much more complex than they had ever imagined 
that it baffled the entire scientific community. But the main thing that occurred was something called genetic entropy. That's the name of the book, Genetic Entropy and the Mystery of the Genome by Dr. John Sanford. Our genome, your genome, is decaying at an alarming rate. But you see, what is the genome? What, what is DNA? That double helix, by the way, is one of the most complex systems known to man. It is absolutely mind-boggling how complex it is and how much information is contained on that double helix. You know that every cell in your body contains more information than the entire Library of Congress? But what is information? That is another scientist by the name of Dr. Werner Gitt, G-I-T-T. -T. Any of you heard of Werner Gitt? See, when I ask that question, every hand in this room should go up. But you see how effective the world is at suppressing? Dr. Werner Gitt and Dr. John Sanford are two scientists that the world wishes did not exist because they can't counter it. The genome is empirical. That means it can be tested and confirmed. Dr. Werner Gitt is an information scientist. And he defines information in, in his book called In the Beginning Was Information. Does that sound familiar? Let's go to John. Chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. What is information, folks? Words. Math. See, these are information. The DNA is pure information. It contains so much information. But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Wow. That pretty well sums it up. But let's go on. You know, I, the pastor said, can you believe in both? Evolution and creation? I tried. I really tried. By the way, that's called theistic evolution. Is that God started that first little cell. And then he periodically worked his way through, you see. And he would come up and, and as it evolved into more complex systems, he'd add a little bit here and there. Guys, that is just plain wrong. Because as the pastor said, if we had millions of years of death and suffering prior to the cross, what was the cross all about? And the other thing is, I hear people say, well, you know, the, the, the flood of Noah, that was just a localized flood. You know, just, it just contained in the Mesopotamia Valley. That was the world in those days. Well, then that makes Noah an idiot. <laughs> because how far can you walk in 120 years? So why build a boat? See, God's word is true, 100%. See, I fell for the trap of commentaries. See, when I first accepted Christ, I, my sister gave me a brand new King James Bible with a cover, the leather cover and a dove on it. Boy, I was so excited. I carried that thing, a big one, you know. I carried it everywhere. I just never opened it. 
You got to put your own notes in God's word. Ask the person who wrote the book. See, you pray, you ask the Holy Spirit. And so I started reading commentaries. I read Spurgeon and Moody and Wearsby and you name it, I read. And then it dawned on me, they're just, they're great men. Great men of God, great scholars, but they're subject to the fallen world just like me. See, I'm a sinner and I can prove it. <laughs> yeah. And so who are they to tell me which parts of this book are true and which aren't? See, it all has to be true or none of it is true as far as I'm concerned. See, that's my thick head. But here's the deal. If you tell me Genesis is allegorical, then don't get in my face with John 3.16 because who are you to tell me which parts are true? But let's go back to that question, can you believe in both? Now, as an educator, I taught high school for years. I taught at the university. I don't believe there's any such thing as a dumb question, but this one gets really close. Oh, I mean, it is so close. And I'm asked this question almost every week. And the question kind of goes like this. Excuse me, Dr. Oliver, couldn't God have used evolution? <laughs> now, that's a trick question, because what is it God can't do? See, God can't sin. He can't lie. His character does not allow that. But could God use evolution? Yeah, he's God. He can do anything he wants. But the question is not formed properly. <laughs> the question should be formed, did God use evolution? Now, if you ask it properly, all you have to do is go to his word, and he says no. How do I know that? First of all, he tells us we humans are created what? In his image. Not in the image of a protozoan. But here's the one. This, this right here should sum it up, should stop all the questions. Did God use evolution? 1 Corinthians 15.39 will solve that for you. 15.39. All flesh is not the same flesh but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. End of discussion. See, if God used evolution, then we evolve from one flesh to another flesh to another flesh, then that makes him a liar. He cannot lie. You see, the, see how all you have to do is go to his word? That's where the answers are. But right now, it is really fun to be a Christian and a scientist. But all the way through, right from the beginning, in the beginning God, right on through evolution, he talks about he, Jesus, being the creator. Revelation 3, 14, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the Amen the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of creation of God. See, he right through the book, he declares he being the creator. But he also tells us not to add to or take away from his word. And boy, is that a trap. And see, that's what happens when you keep trying to bring God down. I kept trying to bring him down, put him in a box, make him fit my preconceived worldview. That's a trap. What better place 
for the master deceiver to start than with the teachers. See, I was deceived, so I passed it on to my students. And guys, I got to tell you something. I didn't sit out with some premeditated desire to deceive my students. I felt it was my duty as a scientist, as a teacher, as an educator. I loved teaching. I loved kids. I even coached varsity baseball. I did not set out to deceive them. I just passed on my own deception. But I'll tell you the sad part. I never, ever compromised. In my discussions or arguments with my Christian students, and by the way, I gave some of my students lower grades just because they were Christians. They irritated me. So let me tell you about the guilt trip when I did accept Christ. One month after my 40th birthday, 1987, July of 1987. But what I mean is I never compromised. I never allowed their God into my science, but they always allowed my science into their God, and that's where I got them. Theistic evolution is more dangerous than any other philosophy. See, God said what he meant and meant what he said. It is 100% true. I thought this was kind of interesting. Even in Jeremiah, look at this. It says, God lets us know right through the book. And I'll tell you, it was awfully difficult as a, uh, a scientist, uh, an intellectual. <laughs> you know, you can intellectualize yourself right out of the kingdom. Look what he says in Jeremiah 8, 8 and 9. It says, how can you claim we are wise? The law of the Lord is with us. In fact, the lying pen of the scribes has produced falsehood. The wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and snared. They have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they really have? Do you see that? God has an answer all the way from beginning to end. But as I said, we're talking about two faith-based religions. And the scientific community knows it, folks. See, I personally believe we should teach everything. It breaks my heart when I see students being taught what to think, not how to think. And what I mean is they're being taught to the test. They, they are actually discouraged from questioning. So they're taught to the test. Just answer the question. This is the answer you put in there. And I have asked students who have gotten 100% on their test how they arrived at those right answers. And you know what? They don't know. They just know that was the right answer. In his book, The Evolution-Creation Struggle, Michael Roos interprets the last 200 years of conflict between biology and religion as a struggle between evolutionism and creationism. It says, creationism... And, uh, and evolutionism is not merely an endorsement of the scientific theory of evolution. It consists of the whole metaphysical or ideological picture built around or on evolution. As such, it constitutes a secular religion. Thus, for Roos, a philosopher of science at Florida State, he got it right. And the scientific community knows that. Because how would we empirically prove the Big Bang how could we empirically prove spontaneous generation from this warm little pond? You see, the National Academy of Science tells us that if it's not empirical, then it's not part of science. They did that to keep 
the metaphysics of creationism out of the classroom. Guys, that's just plain wrong. See, let's just teach it all. Let's just use the brains God has given you to figure it out. You know that it is okay to have different opinions. That's perfectly legitimate. Do you realize that God created each of you with the ability to make choices? And guess what one of your choices is? See, you can choose not to believe in God. Now, if you tell me you choose not to believe in God because you don't want to believe in God, I won't argue with you. I'll feel sorry for you. I'll pray for you because that's exactly where I was. See, I, because of my lifestyle, did not want to be accountable to God. I didn't want to share the glory with God. So I chose not to believe in God. Not because of the evidence, just because I didn't want to. But if you tell me you don't believe in God because of all the scientific evidence, now I'll argue with you because, folks, there is none. Zero. And in fact, when we are honest with the math, we really see how our ologies support special creation. But here's the sad part. This was one of my heroes, Dr. Ernst Mayer. Uh, he was a, a, an evolutionary biologist, look at that, from Harvard. And he was a, com uh, a colleague of Stephen Gould, who was the guru of Darwinian evolution. He was my hero. I read all of his stuff. But look what he says. This was in the journal Science. He says, no educated person any longer questions the validity of the so-called theory of evolution, which we now know to be a simple fact. What? How did that happen and when? And if it were a simple fact, I certainly wouldn't be here today. But here's the sad part. Look how it's written. What happens if you don't believe it is a simple fact? Then you are what? Yeah, you're one of those uneducated, or as I did, I would literally pat my students on the head. Oh, you poor little ignorant Christian. Go back to your desk. Get out of my face. Now, how much of that do you think they can take in front of their peers? See, I intimidated them into silence. And as my biology started to weaken, every time I looked in a microscope, I had to walk away and convince myself that what I was looking at wasn't designed. I mean, doesn't that sound, don't you think you should just go where the evidence leads? Every time I looked in there, I saw perfect design. But yet I had to convince myself that it was random. No. But as my biology crumbled, I could always refer to the other disciplines. Well, the geologists have proven it. You know, look at the earth. How can you ignorant Christians believe in a younger 6,000 years? Man, that's all. Just look at it. It's obvious how old it is. It is. No, I, you know what I see when I look at the earth? I see an earth that is struggling, that has been through absolute stress. Can you imagine the tectonic upheaval and the stress that would have been placed on this planet with a world-encompassing flood? See, I had a friend of mine come back from Vietnam. He had been a prisoner of war. He was 19 years old. I went to visit him in the hospital, and I walked right by him. He was, in the, he was in the hallway, and I walked right by him, didn't even recognize him. He had pure white hair, looked like he was 80 years old. Why do you suppose he looked that way? Stress. So do you see 
that's a cop-out. Well, it's obvious how old the earth is. No, it isn't. And besides, how do we date the earth anyway? Do you realize? Now, I asked this question all around the world. My wife and I just returned from Ireland. I did two weeks. I did six lectures. Very, every, every county in Ireland has a, um, a university. And boy, they are really steeped in, in intellectualism. But you can intellectualize yourself right out of the kingdom. <laughs> because it's not obvious how old the earth is. But I asked them, and I asked every place I go. In fact, I spoke to 600 scientists all in one auditorium in Southern California. That was intimidating because <laughs> some of the people in that room were my heroes. And I, I, I tell people, I laughingly say, the only time I can remember being more nervous was when my mother was in the audience. Yeah, at 50 years old, I was still, okay, Mom, yeah, Mom, yeah. But seriously, 600 scientists and science teachers. And I asked them this question, thought I was going to be clever. But when I asked them, I expected every hand to go up. I'll ask you that question. How many of you in this room today have a basic idea, a clue, you've read it, heard it, said, somebody's taught you how we date fossils? Raise your hand. About 95% of you have an idea. Well, when I asked that room full of scientists, I expected every hand to go up. And it did, every hand. But what I wasn't prepared for was the answer I got. Any of you brave enough to tell me the number one way? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, in that auditorium, it was like a choir. They all went, Arben 14. Guys, I was absolutely stunned. I am rarely speechless, but I was that day. Because carbon-14 cannot date fossils, and it's never been used to date fossils. So why is it everywhere I go, people tell me, oh, Dr. Howard, what do you think about that new fossil, Artodipticus? They, the scientists carbon dated it 4.4 billion million years. Oh, guys, carbon-14 is a dating procedure that can date real carbon-based items, real wood, real bone, real blood, real skin, but you can't date rock. See, we can date the Egyptian mummies. We can date a real piece of wood, real bone. But once it fossilizes, once the minerals replace the cells, turning it to rock, no carbon. But here's the other problem. Even if we could date it, carbon-14, no scientist in the world, and I as a secular humanist scientist, never stretch carbon dating past about 40,000 years. Some scientists stretch it out to maybe 70 to 100, but nobody in the world will stretch carbon past 100,000 years. So do you see the problem? How do we get a date of 3.7 million for Australopithecus afriensis? You all know her, right? Lucy. Or how about Jurassic, 65 million? How do you get million-year dates with something that can't give you million-year dates, even if you could date the rock? See, the students don't know this. They don't know to ask. And if they do, they're discouraged from questioning. By the way, we use radioisotopes like uranium, potassium, argon. These are things that we can get million-year dates with. You know, uranium-238 is a radioactive element. 
It's the parent product. It decays over a given period of time into the daughter product that's non-reactive called lead. Potassium into argon, rubidium into stronium. All of these will be on the test, so I hope you're taking notes. <laughs> Those types of dating procedures can be used to date rock, but only igneous rock. Where are fossils found? Sedimentary rock. So this may shake your philosophy a little bit, but there is no method on this planet or any other to date a fossil. Zero. But the kids don't know this. Most people don't know that. You see, how we get those dates is we find the closest igneous rock to the fossil. That's how come we're so meticulous in our digs. I found the only pachycephalosaurus skull ever found at the Hansen Research Project. My mom said it was a great find for me. Pachy means thick and cephala means head. So thick-headed dinosaur for a thick-headed scientist. But seriously, those dating procedures, what we do is if we find a fossil below the igneous rock, let's say we find the igneous rock and we date it at a million. If we find a fossil six inches below, we say, well, it must be 1.5 million. That's pure guesswork. It's pure speculation that is not empirical. And Dr. Warner Gitt in his book, In the Beginning Was Information, makes a statement that no scientist in the world will argue with. The statement is this, information does not originate by itself in matter. That's pretty clear. It doesn't. Well, if information doesn't originate by itself in matter, and every physical event in the cosmic history represents a piece of information, and the DNA contains more information than the entire Library of Congress, there's a simple question. Where did the information come from? Where did the information in this computer come from? I didn't buy a plastic box and all of a sudden there was all this information in it. The creators of the computer. Where did the information in the PowerPoint come from? The creator of the PowerPoint. You see, information does not originate by itself in matter. There's only one place it can come from, the creator of the universe. You see how that works? But I like this Matthew 24, 4. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He took time out to tell them this. Now, what do you think he would take time out to tell them? And I like this because it's very straightforward, very simple. And in Greek, Hebrew, Spanish, or Portuguese, it still means exactly the same thing. Jesus answered and said to his disciples, Take heed that no man deceive you. Do you catch what he's saying? Will God deceive you? No, God can't. But man will. So don't you find it absurd that we put so much time and energy in tracing man's word and believing man's word over God's word? And yet man will deceive you and God won't? But... The other trap is, like I said, you don't just read textbooks. You read Scripture. You test Scripture with Scripture. Acts 17.11 says you test Scripture. These Bereans received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether these things were so. Yeah, you see, you don't, you don't check God's word with man's word. And I'll tell you something. If there's something you don't understand about his word, if you think there's a mistake or a contradiction, I got news for you. It's your problem, not God's. 
So why is it we cop out from man's word over God's word? Because you're inundated. That's what's happening to the students. But I'll tell you right now, the scientific community knows that Darwinism is dead. Look what this is. This is the cover of this science journal, one of them. Look what it says. Darwin was wrong. No kidding. Darwinism is dead. All we need to do is bury it. The scientist, you know that most of these journals, including this one, what they, they cover here is they go to, to, to describe the origins of life. It's called panspermia or transpermia. That means that life was planted here by aliens or that it tagged onto a comet or a meteorite and landed here from some blast. You see how ridiculous? You see, what kind of faith does that take? But they say, we Christians, oh, that's just faith. Well, in Hebrews 11, 6, God tells us right in his word that without faith, it is impossible. He doesn't say, you know, it, it might not be. He says it is impossible to believe without faith. But he doesn't say blind faith. That's why he gives us so much evidence. Okay. This is out of the National Academy of Science manual. I put this up there just so you would see what I was talking about. First of all, the National Academy of Science should scare you. See, each state has the responsibility of education. Each state has a math framework, a science framework. So for the National Academy of Science to come out with a framework and to tell the, the states how to teach science is illegal. So... What they do is they're very clever. They just say, well, this is just a guideline. We really strongly suggest that you use this manual, but if you don't, that's okay. We'll just withhold your federal funding. Blackmail. But look what it says. Science is a particular way of knowing about the world. In science, explanations are limited to those based on observations and experiments that can be substantiated by other scientists. Now catch this. Here's the part I was talking about explanations that cannot be based on empirical evidence are not a part of science. You catch that? They did that to keep creationism out of the science classroom. But just think about it. Like I said, how do you empirically prove spontaneous generation? You can't. How do you empirically prove the Big Bang? You can't. You see how we speak out of both sides of our mouth? But I wanted to look up the word empirical to make sure that everybody understood and I wasn't just stretching. But see, empirical says originating in or based on observation or experience. Relying on experience or observation alone. Capable of being verified or disproved by observation or experiment. That's empirical. So now then, remember when I asked that room full of scientists how we date fossils and they all said carbon? I asked them another question. And I'll ask you, can anybody in this room give me just one, just one example of empirical Darwinian evolution? I got the same answer from that room full of scientists. You see the problem? Their very explanation, their own definition prevents the teaching of evolution in the classroom because there is no empirical evidence, zero 
You see, that's what we've got to do is let's just teach it all. Let's put evolution, creation, all of the evidence that we actually have, let's put it out there. Let's use the brains God has given you to figure it out. But if it's not empirical, then what is it? Well, it's a miracle. And see, the reason I say that is because I, as a secular humanist scientist, believed in a miracle. That miracle that I believed in was that life came from non-life. It happened once. That it had to have happened because there's no other explanation for the origin of life. You know, to spontaneously generate. We know that life begets life, that chemicals do not produce life, except for that first time. See, that's the faith I had. But see, here's the definition of a miracle. Let's see how it fits versus the definition in the science journal. A miracle is defined as an event that happens outside any known natural law. For example, healing a leper, changing water into wine, and restoring life to a dead body certainly qualify as miracles. In this manner, the spontaneous formation of life from a soup of chemicals also qualifies for miracle status, for this event too lies outside any known natural law. Do you see how that works? Let's just call them what they are. Two faith-based religions, teach it all and get on with it. And stop beating the kids up. Stop withholding evidence because of our preconceived worldview. I get so tired, I feel like I'm being held at gunpoint. <laughs> Once you admit you're a creationist, I got news for you, it's like painting a target on your back. Although the worst attacks I have had have come from within the church, not from outside. That's the scary part. Now, as I told you, the math is how we can kind of really determine how our evidence is, is working. Our empirical evidence, our ologies, all we have to do is apply the math. Now, in 1962, I was a freshman in high school, and I was taught in my math class that 10 to the 50th power was considered impossible. Now, look at this. The occurrence of any event where the chances are beyond 1 in 10 followed by 50 zeros is an event that we can state with certainty will never happen. No matter how much time is allotted, no matter how many conceivable opportunities could exist for the event to take place. See, I was taught in, in my science class that given enough time, anything is possible. Guys, that's just plain nonsense. But see, that's the primary axiom. Time versus natural selection versus random chance, you know, that's evolution. Mutation plus time do not result in new information. Every single time a mutation results in a loss of information. 100% of the time, a mutation is a loss of information. You catch that? No new information. So then, how does a mutation then change a species into another one? It's impossible. 99% of the time, a mutation is fatal. And that 1% that isn't fatal is benign. But the students don't know this. Now, in 62, it was just 50 zeros. Everybody in this room can write that number. 50 zeros, that's a big number. 
But what happened between 62 and 82? The computer revolution. You know, when I was in high school, we didn't have phones that were so much smarter than I am. We didn't have computers and iPads and things. But over the next 20 years, the computer revolution changed science beyond... In fact, we were so sure that the computer revolution was going to silence the Christians once and for all. See, I figured that science would catch up in technology and prove my brilliance, so I sent my name and phone number to Nobel just in case, you see. Yeah. But in that 20 years, guess what happened? You know that we can do calculations that Einstein and Planck and Bohr and all these great mathematicians couldn't even imagine? We can, we're finding new prime numbers. Computers are absolutely amazing at the mathematical equations. And so now then, we can apply the laws of probability to the laws of evolution. Back in 62, it was 10 to the 50th power. That, just, that was the odds of just one random act of Darwinian evolution. And by the way, it would have taken multiple acts to result in you know, the first cell if it just spontaneously generated, if it was the simplest known cell, it had to have been a plant cell. So how did it get information to di- divide, to multiply, to become two sexes, and then to become animals? You see, it required multiple acts of evolution. But that is just the odds of one. Now, what do you think happened between 1962 and 82? Let's take a look. That number was 50 zeros. What do you think happened? A hundred zeros? What if it jumped to 500 zeros? Try writing that number. You could do it, but it'd take a while. But that isn't even close. That number jumped to a number with 40,000 zeros after it. That is the odds of one random act of spontaneous generation, folks. So for me to believe in Darwinian evolution, I had to do it in spite of the evidence, not because of it. And that's where I tell you that it took great faith. The likelihood of the formation of life from inanimate matter is one to a number with 40,000 zeros after it. It is big enough to bury Darwin and the whole theory of evolution. There was no primeval soup, neither on this planet nor any other, and if the beginnings of life were not random, they must therefore have been the product of purposeful intelligence. That's out of Nature magazine, again, a secular scientific publication, and that's Dr. Sir Fred Hoyle, a world-class mathematician. Well, that was in 20 years. It went from 50 zeros to 40,000 zeros. What do you think happened in the next 20 years to 2012? Let's just take a look at this number. That number, look at this, the anthropic principle simply stated is the fine-tuning of the physical universe to allow life to exist on this planet. In order to reach this mind-boggling degree of fine-tuning with so many different parameters smacks of some form of intelligent design. According to Penrose, and that's Dr. Roger Penrose, another mathematician, Look at this. The number had to have been accurate to within one part in 10 to 10 to the 123rd power, and that is a number so vast that it can't be written on a piece of paper the size of the entire visible universe. 
Now you tell me which takes more faith. That is the odds. 10 to 10 to the 123rd. But that's not 10 to the 100. If you had a computer big enough to do that, and by the way, the Cornell University computer that I am attached to can do that number. And if you have a computer that you want to try that, do it. 10 to 10 to the 123rd. You know what it comes out to? A big sideways eight. Do you know what that is? That's infinity. That is the mathematical odds. So do you see what I'm saying? So as Christians and Christian students being beaten up and said, oh, those ignorant Christians, you know, how can you believe? Guys, that is just plain wrong. The math supports special creation. Here is the quote from Dr. Werner Gitt. Look what, he's a professor at the German Federal Institute of Physics. No scientist in the world will argue with this. There is no known law of nature, no known process, and no known sequence of events which can cause information to originate by itself in matter. That's why the scientific community will not even review his book because they don't, want to, they don't want to review it and say it's nonsense because they're afraid somebody will read it and find out that it really isn't. There is no scientist in the world that will argue with that. So then, if information does not originate by itself in matter and no scientist argues with it, says reality can be understood not only in terms of the flow of energy, but also in the terms of what? The flow of information. So says a team of physicists. You see what it says? Using this postulate and five axioms drawn from information theory, but here we have to ask, if information doesn't originate by itself in matter, where does it come from? See, logic... Deductive reasoning, common sense, tells you it can only come from the Creator. An experiment by Ray Hogan, a physicist at the University of Chicago and director of the Fermilab Particle Astrophysics Center near Batavia. Look at this. They will attempt to measure the connections among information, matter, and space-time. But information does not originate by itself in matter. So therefore, guys, and, and by the way, we're going to end right here, but I have just barely scratched the tip of the iceberg. I, I opened up by telling you that this is causing great grief, the entropy. What we now know, and you can go online, there is a computer program available to everybody, Christians, homeschool families, the, the, the world. It's called... Uh, Mendel's Accountant.info. That is a mathematical uh, computer program that's available for everybody to use so you can test it yourself. Uh, this book is available too. To, uh, we have a few of them uh, in Warner Gets. But what they have found is that each generation has a hundred more deleterious or detrimental mutations than the 
generation prior. So in other words, I have a hundred more detrimental mutations in my genome than my dad. My son has a hundred more than me. Well, by taking those um, numbers, a hundred, and if we were to put that on a mathematical program like the Mendel's accountant, you can model it backwards. Well, they just took 10 just to see what would happen in this book. And guys, you can't go back more than about 6,000 years. And the entire population, human population, would become extinct. So if it wasn't for natural selection that God programmed into us in the beginning, and just think about it, when Adam and Eve were created in the garden, they were perfect. No mutations. So the mutation didn't start till the fall. So do you now then, does that help you understand the longevity of the people prior to the flood? Their mutation rate was very slow. But here's the funny thing. When they modeled this back to the beginning, and they started with Adam and Eve, you know, after the fall, they had kids and it spread out. But after they went out a few generations, it bottlenecked at eight. Well, isn't that convenient? Or is that a coincidence? How many people were on the ark? Eight. From the eight, then it started to go back out to current time. You can model this yourself. And in this, a brief history of our genome, dark DNA, they talk about it. And they talk about that it is far more complex than anyone ever imagined. They talk about the hundred mutations, if I can find it. (laughs) Check this. It says, our genomes then are not just recipes for making people. They are living historical records. Because our genomes are so vast, consisting, look at this, of more than 6 billion letters. That is so complex that it is mind-boggling. But they also talk about in here the 100 mutations. But it's really interesting how they touch on it versus how Dr. Sanford and their people did. They just, oh, there's 100 more mutations per generation, and they just slide right on by it. So guys, I have barely scratched the surface of the tip of the iceberg. There is so much good information out there. And as Russ Miller, Russ Miller and I have teamed up, we actually go around the country now doing huge uh, conferences. We're doing one in um, the end of October uh, in uh, El Paso. We're doing Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And then we're, we, we leave there and go up to Albuquerque doing the same thing. And we still can't cover all the information. So just know that God's word stands very nicely by itself. And that it is 100% true. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you. We thank you for just who you are, Lord. We thank you for giving us the, the minds to think. And Lord, we, I just pray for the folks that are here today that you would just use this information to just understand that 
you are who you say you are and that you said what you meant and you meant what you said. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Tim Masters with this week's message on the Destined to Win podcast. Destined to Win is made possible with the prayerful and financial support of those destined to win. To donate online, visit vlccaz.org. That's vlccaz.org. Destined to Win is a production of Victorious Life Christian Center with services Sunday mornings at 10 at the Flagstaff Middle School Complex. I'm Joe Harding. For Pastor Tim Masters and the congregation at Victorious Life Christian Centers, you're invited to join us here next week for another edition of the Destined to Win podcast.